Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another live edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. What is it? Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Uh, summer is just a few weeks away and it doesn't feel like summer in terms of the news cycle because so much is happening, which is rare for this time of year. It's not all good stuff. We mentioned very briefly in yesterday's show a topic that I promised we'd revisit today and I am revisiting today and that is Bill C-20. And this is the firearms legislation that Justin Trudeau announced, the so-called freeze-on-handgun purchases. And I say so-called, and I say freeze, because I I want us to actually be very clear about what has been proposed and and what's in this bill. And we're going to break it down in just a moment, but I, I want you to hear first off, and we played this clip yesterday, how Justin Trudeau framed what it is that he's doing here. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. There was that weird pause before the applause started that makes me think there might have been someone just standing out of frame reminding people, no, 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 now's the time you you have to clap here. But the way he talks about it, it's as though no longer will you be able to have one. A freeze on ownership, he said. And then you hear further, okay, it's a freeze on purchasing. And then you read the bill and there's a a fair bit of confusion there, especially when it comes to sport shooting. So first off, I want to drill down into what it is that was actually announced and who better to do that with? Uh, The answer is no one than Tracy Wilson of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Tracy, it's good to talk to you as always. This is something that we knew was coming in some form. I mean, the Liberals tried in the last parliament to allow municipalities to ban handguns, which was something that, you know, Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal were asking for. This is a significant escalation from that. Yeah, so as you know, they started off talking about municipal handgun bans, giving cities and towns the ability to ban handguns within their territory, which would basically be a bylaw prohibiting the storage and transportation within their borders. So of course that didn't work out. Alberta, Saskatchewan, a bunch of provinces went ahead and put in legislation preemptively to block them from being able to do that. So then in the last election cycle, they switched to talking about maybe doing a provincial ban. Of course, Quebec is all over it, cheering for it. And almost every other province I'm sure would say no. So they knew they weren't getting anywhere with this. It would be impossible to do. Um, It's kind of funny. It's a little bit of a gut punch to Stephen Del Duca here in uh, Ontario. He's been running that as a big part of his campaign. But this is what they've decided to do. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think all Canadians can agree. We don't want gangbangers, violent criminals, abusers, people like that to have guns. But closing the market on legal handguns isn't a public safety measure. It's political theater. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that the liberals do, and, and it's a very smart move politically, is they, whenever they're putting something that restricts gun ownership for law-abiding gun owners, they also put all these things that are uncontroversial in there as well so that people can look and, like, I mean, for example, in Bill C-21, they talk about the border. I'd say not nearly in as strong enough terms as they should. They talk about domestic violence. They talk about the firearm situation of people that may be at risk of violence for others, what they call red flag laws. And in, in a lot of cases, I mean, let's talk about red flag laws here, because when you look at the way the liberals frame this, you'd say, well, yeah, I want absolutely there to be the ability to take guns away from people that pose a risk to others. But that already exists. Yeah, of course. So <clears throat> that already exists. I mean, you and I both know I'm a handgun owner. I'm an AR-15 owner. I own all kinds of guns. If something was to happen here and my husband was to call the police or the RCMP or the Canadian Firearms Program and say, hey, Tracy Wilson is being violent with me. Uh, I'm in danger. She's a violent person. You know exactly what that's going to look like. It's an ERT response at my door, my door being kicked in, my guns being seized, you know, seize them now, ask questions later. And of course, I'd have to fight to get them back. All of that already exists in Canada. And, you know, in, in an emergency, a crisis situation, of course, you've got 911. Like this is this is literally existing framework that um, that we've already got in Canada. And stats can data shows us that less than 1% of all domestic calls even have a firearm present at the address, let alone used or threatened. Can you say that again? Stats can data shows us that less than 1% of all domestic violence calls in Canada even have a firearm present at the address, wow. let alone used or threatened. Yeah, so, so it's solving a problem that simply doesn't exist. Yeah, and I think all of this is ultimately padding for what the Liberals really want to do, which is the, the handgun ban. And, and we know from 2020, and I explored this extensively in uh, the documentary series we put out last year, Assaulted, the Order and Council, an overnight ban on some 1,500 types of firearms, which they later expanded a couple years later. Uh, to this day, the promised buyback program hasn't materialized, so people like me, like you, and like uh, dozens and hundreds and hundreds of gun businesses business owners that we spoke to in that also are just sitting on this, unable to do anything with it. This is different. They're proposing this through legislation, which means that it still has to go through the proper channels, which means it's still legal in Canada if you're licensed to go out and buy a handgun right now. So, I mean, I don't want them to be more aggressive with it, but it does strike me as odd that on one hand is this pressing threat that is causing carnage in the streets, but on the other hand, not so pressing that we don't have the benefit of time for people to go out and buy more as they are in droves right now. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, like, look, if this was a crisis, if this was something that Canada absolutely needed for public safety measures, if this was a credible public safety policy, then he would have tried to do the same thing he did with the May 2020 gun ban. It would just be like, hey, that's it. You know, we don't need handguns in this country. We're coming around them up. And that's the end of it. But of course, as you know, we've got the 2020 gun ban tied up in federal court. It's not going the way they thought it would go. Um, the majority of our case is based on the fact that they've used an OIC, which circumvents democracy, totally avoids the entire parliamentary process. And uh, so, yeah, so they, they've taken a different route with this, which, of course, uh, gives us time to fight it, gives us time to stretch it out. Um, suggest amendments to it in the House of Commons and the Senate and see where we go from here. But in the meantime, yeah, go shopping. 
You you mentioned one very compelling stat. I, I want to play a clip for you, Tracy, of something Justin Trudeau said this morning about how the criticism of this is all coming from a place of, of misinformation. Your message be to um, firearms groups that are saying, uh, you know, this handgun ban uh, continues to just uh, target lawful gun owners and, you know, it's you know, similar criticism to other gun legislation saying it's not going to target people that are breaking the law anyways. I think people need to be careful about uh, misinformation and disinformation in this. We've explicitly and specifically not targeted law-abiding firearms owners because uh, those who currently own and uh, operate handguns safely and store them safely are not at all targeted by this legislation. We're simply saying uh, that we are uh, freezing the market and in the future it'll not be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns in Canada. There have been too many tragedies. Canadians need to see safer communities and this is uh, a comprehensive multi-step path towards that. So, I mean, the, the relevant part of that, law-abiding gun owners are not targeted by this. Yet, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, once this bill passes, if I go to a gun store, I will not be able to buy a handgun, which strikes me as targeting a law-abiding gun owner. So, am I missing something here? No. In fact, this legislation solely targets legal gun owners. And here's the other thing, Andrew. Like, I'm a middle-aged mom and a grandma. You know, I, I do a lot of sports shooting. Maybe I decide I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not really into it. I haven't been out to the range in over a year myself. <clears throat> Let's say I decide I want to sell my handguns. I want to move on to something else. I'm just not interested in it anymore. I can't. So now not only can you not buy any more, but you're forced to keep the ones you've got. At the same time, if I say, okay, fine, I'll keep them. I take them to, to my deathbed. Then what? My family is going to be forced to turn them over to the police for destruction or have them deactivated. Those are the options. Zero compensation. And I mean, I've got thousands of dollars of handguns here, right? So, yeah, I, I think he he missed an opportunity to really be a hero here. He, he gave away a really important self-own at the very beginning of his press conference when he said, you know, for seven years, we've enacted all these measures, all this gun control, including the May 2020 gun ban. And yet gun crime continues to rise in this country. Well, doesn't that tell you that what you're doing isn't being, it's not effective. It's not working. And his, that's a cell phone, right? So his response to his own issue is to enact more of it. You know, that he missed the opportunity here. He could have said, you know what? We're going to get tough on criminals. We're going to get tough on the border. We're going to reduce do smuggling. We're going to invest in at-risk communities, initiatives for kids to, to keep them out of gangs. We're going to do a whole slew of really important measures. And, uh, and that's how we're going to keep Canadians safe. The reason he doesn't do it is it takes more than one short election cycle to show positive change. If we talk about the longer term aspect of this, if handguns are, are going to be essentially closed off, that market's going to be closed off, plus a, a huge amount of, of semi-automatic rifles were caught up in the um, order in council in May 2020. Does this look, I mean, how I predict this is going, and you may have a different perspective, is that they're basically trying to phase out the restricted category of firearms. So for people that don't know, you've got your non-restricted, your hunting rifles and so on, your restricted which are handguns and, and some long guns. And then you've got your prohibiteds, which for all intents and purposes are the ones you can't get. And it seems like that restricted category is getting very, very small now. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And you know what happens when that restricted category gets smaller and, and obsolete is so do gun ranges. 
you know, we've got 4,600 gun ranges across this country. Um, a lot of them are community owned. Um, some of them are privately owned. You've got an entire industry that contributes $8.2 billion to the Canadian GDP that is basically literally just got cut in half, if not more, um, in the last two years under the Trudeau regime. And for what? For political opportunity, to punish people that aren't likely to vote for him anyways. You know, like I said, he had a real opportunity here to do something credible to make Canada a safer country, and he failed. Let's just talk about the way we go after this. I mean, we don't have, as everyone knows, the, the Second Amendment in Canada that protects in a constitutional way firearms rights. I know you've got a legal challenge against the order in council, but is your view on this that there is a, a legal solution or does there have to be a political solution, a politician that's prepared to stand up and uh, speak out against the media that don't seem to understand or want to understand guns against a lot of the bad faith activists and, and just say, no, we, we are standing up for this law abiding community? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a political solution, of course, is a is a more permanent, longer solution. There is no way to evergreen this. Even in C21, there's a measure there to, um, you know, to prevent future governments from um, reclassifying firearms to a lesser class. Um, but with enough political will, of course, that can always be changed over. There is no such thing as evergreening. Um, <clears throat> if there is a way to challenge this in the courts, of course, the CCFR... Um, always says that we will do whatever it takes to stand up for legal Canadian gun owners. And we mean it. When we say it, we mean it. Um, but ultimately, I think going through the parliamentary process itself is long and arduous. C-71 took 14 months to get through the system. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I've had a lot of interviews today, so I'm losing my voice. Um, but, we, you know, we're, we're going to be pushing against it. We're going to be uh, testifying against it. We're going to be proposing amendments. You know, we'll see what happens. But of course, with the NDP liberal coalition, they can basically do whatever they want to anybody they want in this country. And there's not a lot we can do about it. So, yeah, we do need we need a new government. Well, I, I do want to let you go because I think your voice is an important one. So I don't want to take it away from you here. But uh, just in closing, Tracy, let me ask you uh, one final question here, because the government said, and I thought this was another cell phone, that they don't expect there to be a run on handguns because they're so difficult to get and so heavily regulated, which I think proves that we don't need the regulation. But it also proves how out of touch they are. I know you have a lot of members who are gun owners, uh, gun business owners. Tell me what they're experiencing in the last 24 hours. Well, it's funny, actually, uh, SFRC in Kingston, which is a great gun shop, uh, they were at the shop until four o'clock in the morning last night processing orders. Uh, wow. Shooting supplies was there until midnight last night. Calgary Shooting Center has a six hour lineup outside the store just to get in and look. There are shipments of handguns coming in and not even getting unloaded off the skid. They're just gone. They're gone before they even hit the floor. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think this is going the way he thought it would. And this is day one. So, you know, if, if it does take until fall of 2020 or even longer <clears throat> with our with the work that we'll do to have this passed, I mean, we may double our number of handgun ownerships in this country, which already sits at 1.1 <laughs> million legal handguns. So That's great. I always said that Bill Blair was probably like the greatest Canadian AR-15 salesman. And I think now Marco Mendicino is the greatest uh, Canadian handgun salesman. So the Liberals, <laughs> the Liberals are great for the gun business in a roundabout way. Uh, Tracy Wilson, keep up the fantastic work and, and thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for the opportunity. 
Thanks. Have some uh, have some tea and lemon before your uh, your next interview. Yeah, I emailed Tracy. I think at like I don't know, like five forty five this morning, and she emailed me like five minutes later. And she's been just doing nonstop interviews. So uh, we're glad she was able to take the time with us today. Uh, just before we go on to our next segment here, I want to play one more clip of Justin Trudeau, and this just shows how rhetoric, political rhetoric, verbal rhetoric, is so fascinating to watch, especially if you know it's a load of nonsense. He is somehow positioned going after law abiding gun owners and their legally owned property as being a matter of freedom. Take a look. This is about freedom. People should be free to go to the supermarket, their school, or their place of worship without fear. These people should be free to go to the park or to a birthday party without worrying about what might happen from a stray bullet. Gun violence is a complex problem, but at the end of the day, the math is really quite simple. The fewer the guns in our communities, the safer everyone will be. You know, ultimately, the math isn't that simple because the fewer the legal guns, the less safe or at least no difference in safety the society and community is. But again, facts don't matter on this issue, just rhetoric. I want to turn back to Ontario politics, which we're focusing a fair bit more on in the last couple of weeks because the Ontario election is coming up on Thursday. Yesterday, we had New Blue leader Jim Carajalios on to talk about the New Blueprint, which is his party's platform. And we want to cover all the bases here and, and speak to the conservative movement more broadly. So uh, today, we invited back Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party, and he joined joins me now. Derek, it's good to talk to you here. I, I know that you've put with the Ontario Party conscience rights front and center on your platform, among other issues we'll get to. But uh, let's just start there. Why do you think that's such a, a critical issue in the province right now? Right. Well, you know, there, there certainly is a freedom issue in this province. But what we're seeing simultaneously is people's conscience, conscience is getting trampled. So whether it's, you know, a vaccine, perhaps that somebody doesn't want to take, whether it's an attestation that somebody doesn't want to uh, say to to be registered to be some kind of profession or whether it's a medical treatment that maybe somebody doesn't want to be involved in like abortion or euthanasia we're seeing conscience rights of canadians and ontarians being trampled now conscience rights are often things we hear i mean at any level of politics associated with social conservatism whether it's conscience rights for healthcare workers conscience rights for mps or mpps do you approach this as a socially conservative party is that what the ontario party is or is it just a party that is uh, in part made of social conservatives yeah i mean i think many of our policies appeal to social conservatives but i think our reach is much broader than that uh you know our view of conscience doesn't you know doesn't necessarily go down to a strict religious or moral issue we're saying we don't want people to be forced to do things that they don't want to do uh the vaccine for example to me is not a religious issue i know for some people it is uh, for me it's a, an issue of personal health autonomy personal health freedom to choose what gets put into your body and what doesn't so i think a lot of uh, a lot of what we're saying here is we don't want the government telling people what to do and we don't want people the government penalizing people uh, for for not doing things that they really, really don't want to do. 
one of the things that we've seen, obviously, in the last two and a bit years now in politics is that COVID has overwhelmed everything. We've seen it very much reshape politics. The traditional left-right axis has changed a bit as well on this. Uh, we hope, and I mean, obviously, it's not a given, that we will put these issues behind us and be able to move on to other things in society. So uh, let me ask you, because I know you do have a platform that has things beyond COVID and beyond vaccine mandates on. What do you see from an Ontario Party perspective as being the top issues moving forward? Yeah, so just to summarize, I think that, again, the freedom issues, the government surveillance issues are very important. So we we did a, a, a petition against the digital ID uh, that's you know promoted by the World Economic Forum and others. We think that a digital ID and, and expanding government surveillance is a very bad idea. Uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of other, you know, discussion about collection of biometric data and, and other forms of tracking people, carbon foot, footprint trackers. We want to make sure that the government is not in the business of tracking its citizens, of controlling its citizens. We saw what happened after the trucker convoy where people had bank accounts shut down, uh, licenses revoked, uh, property taken. We want to make sure that the, the government does not have the ability to do that. And when you have a digital ID paired with perhaps a digital currency in the future, it's very easy to turn the light switch off on people that are doing things that the government doesn't like. These are very much important issues, and I don't want to undercut them, but do you feel they are the ones that are front and center for the province as a whole, or do you feel that people are more motivated by things like affordability, taxes, the carbon tax, cost of living issues in general? So cost of living is certainly front and center. And I mentioned the, you know, the government surveillance aspect is one of the things. Cost of living is a major issue. And of course, we have a plan to deal with the housing market as best as we can here in Ontario. One thing we've proposed is a complete uh, ban of foreign purchasing. That's something that I, that I, that I uh, proposed when I was running for leader of the Conservative Party. We know the Liberals have actually finally said they were going to do the same thing, uh, but we don't trust them to implement it in the right way or in a timely fashion. That's one thing we want to do with respect to housing. As far as the gasoline prices, we've proposed taking off PST and uh, the, the Ontario gas tax, which would lower the price of fuel about 20 cents based on current prices. But we're also looking into the future. We, want to, we would like to propose an energy corridor between here and Alberta. Obviously, that would require other provinces, even the federal government, to be uh, involved with that. But we want to make sure that we, you know, once and for all, cement a movement forward to make uh, uh, Canada, or at least a, a good chunk of it, energy independent and, uh, you know, get prices down and make sure that we're using our own products here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, right now we're seeing a global energy crisis, and a lot of this, I, I think, has been led by uh, the Russia issue. If you're talking about European companies, but in uh, European countries, but in, in Canada, this has been an ongoing challenge where you have uh, provinces that are anti-energy, that stymie a development of the energy sector, and the result of it is a, an increased reliance on on foreign oil. But but how do you? I mean, just look at the federal government right now. How do you, if you were the premier of Ontario, uh, move forward on this when you have a, a federal government that is so hostile to that agenda? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so you'll note that I said between here and Alberta, which, you know, right now, all of those governments would be friendly, I think, to, to you know, increased energy infrastructure. Uh, you're right, we're fighting against the federal government. I think, though, the Liberals, as much as their agenda points them in one direction, if enough people are clamoring for something, they eventually will have to, you know, do something if it makes sense. So we want, we're not going to wait for them to do that. We're going to make sure that we have a proposal. Maybe we get the other provinces on board as well. And, you know, propose it and get the public to buy into it as well. 
But I think there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, I mean, even strategic oil reserves is something that, you know, our province has never done. Our country doesn't really do. There's a lot of things that we can do to cushion, to cushion ourselves against shocks that can and will come. Uh, just when we're talking about Ontario's place uh, outside of Ontario and just in the country and in the world, there was a, a radio ad of yours that I heard a couple of times, and I, I don't have the clip to play, but you you talk, and I have the transcript here in front of me, that uh, Doug Ford answers to the World Economic Forum, to the United Nations, and to the World Health Organization, but never to you. And you say, I'm Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party, and I will never allow the globalists to rule Ontario vote down globalism, vote for the Ontario party. There are a lot of people online right now listening that are probably like, yeah, that's great and rah, rah, rah. But do you think that is a message that resonates with Ontarians more broadly? If you're talking about expanding the base, expanding your support beyond those who are already on side? Yeah, so surprisingly, we've, you know, we've done some broad-based issues polling. And believe it or not, some of these uh, you know, world economic digital, digital ID issues Poll very high, poll, poll as high as some of any other issues that we've been fighting on. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's a surprise to me. I mean, you know, uh, now, do, do they do they know every uh, detail as, as much as perhaps some of your listeners do? Probably not. But this idea about, you know, being tracked and, you know, international organizations does actually hit a nerve. Of course, our party is, you know, talking about other things, you know, indoctrination in the school system, uh, you know, general affordability all of these kinds of things. But, you know, that particular issue actually does have a very strong uh, appeal to to, to many people here in this province. So let's move to healthcare, which I think is perennially one of the big issues in Ontario. And oftentimes, whenever a politician is approaching this, they only want to tiptoe around it. They'll, they'll admit that it's broken, but no one actually does a, a solution. And I think one of the biggest things Ontario needs is uh, to have private alternatives, which is like the kiss of death to campaigns, or at least conventional wisdom says it is. You have it like on your website in big, bold letters that you want private alternatives in healthcare. So what would that actually look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know what? There's there's various ways to go about it. What what we did say is that we would permit private organizations to build hospitals and provide other services. We've also said that people would be permitted to to have supplemental private health insurance if they choose to do it. Um, you know, out of the OECD countries, Canada spends the pretty much the most per capita on healthcare, and we have poor outcomes compared to many other countries. Uh, one thing that pretty much every other country that scores well on that list does is have, you know, private alternatives like what we're talking about here. So that's something that obviously, you know, we could flesh out further and there's different ways to talk about it. But that's one major thing that, that we basically have to look into doing. Another, of course, is, uh, again, I, I think, you know, the, people always talk about, you know, uh, 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 credential equivalency from, you know, people that come here and are trained and they're not able to work in the field that they're, they're trained in. I think that's important. I mean, anecdotally, I know about seven or eight people in my rough sphere here that uh, are going to medical school in other countries and then working in other countries as doctors. These are Canadians who, who wanted to go to school in Canada. They couldn't make it in. So I think there's something to be said about increasing spots at our medical schools. But we have to do you know, a major change here in the system and allowing private alternatives uh, while maintaining the public system as well, like they do in many European countries, I think is critical to that.
I don't know how much of the interview with Tracy Wilson you caught before uh, you came on the show, but uh, generally we were talking about uh, the bill that Justin Trudeau introduced yesterday on uh, handguns, uh, trying to ban ownership and new purchase of them. Uh, Obviously, you were in federal politics, so I know you know the firearms file somewhat, but is there a way that a province can flex a little bit of muscle on this? I know Alberta has tried by appointing its own uh, chief firearms officer. Uh, Is that something you would want to do in Ontario and, and anything else you could do? on firearms yeah I, I think there are I mean I you know we've we've bandied about different ideas and and one idea I've had and, and frankly I haven't you know fleshed it out enough but I think there would be a way for a province to potentially classify a special category of peace officers that would not really be keeping the law per se but could be enabled to uh, still own handguns so for example if the government bans handguns completely the government could potentially say, Hey, you know, all you guys who had a restricted license, you know, up until two days ago when it was banned, hypothetically, if that happens, well, now you're a class C peace officer and we need to make sure that you, you know, have a handgun in storage, you know, at your home in case we, we need reservists in the police force or, or something like this. I feel like there is a way to get around this. Again, that's just a, a, a an idea that that that's been percolating in my head. But I feel that there are. I ways. just just want to make just want to make sure I understand. So basically, turning Ontario gun owners into a like a standing militia of sorts. Well, I wouldn't call it a militia. I would I would call it peace officers. And again, there the, we could we could use a similar vetting system as, as was already in place. But if the government were to get to a, a spot where they were just banning handguns completely or or, or anything like this. I think there I think there is some provincial jurisdiction to enable ownership to still happen. So one thing that I, I would bring up, and I, I asked this to uh, Jim Carajalios, your uh, opponent in the New Blue yesterday, we know that smaller parties that are upstarts have a, a significant hurdle ahead of them if they want to win seats, certainly to win a large enough number of seats to form a, a government or wield influence. Would you, as the leader of, of one of these upstart parties, support electoral reform that would, I mean, like, for example, like Ontarians voted on in 2007, mixed-member proportional, that would actually give some proportional representations so that smaller parties like yours can have some more influence? You know, that's a really good question. I've, I've always been a fan of first past the post. And, uh, you know, I, under, I understand the appeal to some of these other uh, uh, forms of voting as well. Um, you know, at this point, obviously, being in a smaller party, there is more appeal to it. Um, I, I frankly think that, you know, a, a party like ours or a movement like ours, as it grows, could win uh, anyways down the line. So, uh, I understand that the proportional system might allow for some early gains, but it would also work against actually forming a government. I mean, when you have these kinds of the more proportional it is, the less your odds are of actually forming, uh, you know, say a majority government, for example. So I think there's pros and cons to it. It's not some it's not an axe that that our party particularly grinds. But, you know, you're right. It is a way to get in the door a little bit easier. Um, we'll leave that up to the, the parties in power. Um, you know, again, there's there's pros and cons to that to that whole debate. And of course, you would have, you know, if you if you if you went 100 percent proportional, you'd have, you know, 100 different choices at the ballot. You'd have, you know, the seniors party and the, this party and the, that party. So um, it may not be quite as advantageous as some people say, but I'm you know, I'm, I'm agnostic about it. 
Obviously, we don't know what the exact breakdown of seats is going to be on on Thursday. If we did, we could make a lot of money on the betting market. But uh, if you were in a situation where the Ontario party had a couple of seats in the legislature, maybe held the balance of power, at the very least held enough of a block to have some influence, what are the the deal breakers? What are the things that you would absolutely not compromise on and the issues where you think you might be able to work with other parties? Yeah, well, some of the things that we've some of the things that we've been very clear on from the beginning. So, you know, we're against a digital ID. Uh, we're against you know mandates and 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 passports and things like this. We're against indoctrination in our school system. So, anything that would be promoting you know, for example, critical race theory or or you know, age inappropriate sex education uh, or you know, digital IDs, digital currencies. These things are very you know, very much a fabric of of who we are. Um, you know, I think obviously we're in favor of, you know, balanced budgets and, and that kind of thing. But uh, when it comes to uh, more, you know, issues about, you know, should a road go here or there, uh, you know, exactly how much money should go into the healthcare system. I mean, obviously we can be a bit flexible, but I mean, you know, our voters voted on us because of the policies that we have, and we're going to make sure that we stick, uh, stick to those. Uh, and frankly, if there's only a few of us in parliament in the in the provincial parliament there, we're, we've been elected to kind of be a thorn in the side of the governing uh, of the governing parties. So, I mean, obviously, we're not uh, there just to be protesters, but we're there to, to, you know, to stick to our values as well. Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party. I know you got an election coming up in a couple of days, so I appreciate you taking the time to come back. Thanks very much, Derek. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Derek Sloan, leader of the Ontario Party. And again, I know it's funny. I had, I, maybe it's not funny, but I had a bunch of complaints from uh, people in Alberta. And then I think there was one from BC saying, You're, why are you focusing on Ontario politics? And I said, you didn't complain when I focused on Ontario politics and all the Ontarians put up with it. So uh, now we have to do it. And I apologize to like PEI and uh, New Brunswick people. I haven't done uh, too, too much on your politics yet. But if you have an election coming up and you've got some people you want us to talk to, do let us know. Uh, that's the problem. I mean, I, you can't do it in like a 50 state context if we were in the U.S. where like, you know, today we do Wyoming and tomorrow we do Idaho and, you know, Wednesday we do California and all that. But uh, what we are going to do on this show is try to talk about the conservative movement and the freedom movement, which has been, I think, very much subjected to a bit of a resurgence or some might say just an initial surgence to coin a word in the last couple of years. And, and COVID has done that. COVID has, and I, I restate this again, COVID has reshaped dramatically the political fault lines in this country, and it's changed so that conservatives can't just rely, as they so often do, on pocketbook issues. And this was one of my big criticisms of Aaron O'Toole, is that he wanted to be like a 1980s, 1990s conservative leader in the 2020s, which doesn't exactly work because the complexities of the voters are a lot more varied than they were when cost of living and balanced budgets were the top issues. Don't get me wrong. These are important issues now. We have an inflation crisis. Gas is over two bucks a liter. I think pretty much anywhere in Eastern or Western Canada, like West Coast Canada. And I know Alberta, you guys get some cheaper gas. So ha ha ha, Ontario, right? But ultimately what we're looking at right now is one of many crises. And you can't just be the chief auditor or the chief bookkeeper 
and expect to govern with a national coalition. And, and that's what conservatives do that irks me so much. They assume that you have to just retreat to economic issues and not talk about anything else, and that's the way you're going to win. And let's face it, voters see through it. It just doesn't work. You've got to have answers to a number of other questions that come up, to free speech questions, to civil liberties questions, to conscience questions, to general liberty to hope, to national unity, to faith, not necessarily religious faith, although sometimes. And voters want more than just, uh, yeah, I'd like to balance the budget and here's some tax credits. I mean, because that, if, if that's all they wanted, the conservatives would have won every single election. The fact that they've lost several in a row would suggest maybe, just maybe, that is not cutting it. So that's a message to anyone seeking provincial or federal or, heck, even municipal leadership in this country. That'll do it. We've got to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. We'll have more of The Andrew Lawton Show later in the week. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.